0: Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. It's kind of Daylight savings time, so it's still bright daylight for me, so it still feels like good evening or good afternoon. Welcome to the show tonight. We have a unique show because uh, things happen rapidly at California Haunts Radio, and uh, yes, last night was no different. Uh, the guest that I had scheduled, let me straighten out my head here. The guest that I had scheduled canceled, and uh, I was left empty today without anything. So, uh, you know, I've been, I've been wanting to do a haunted Hollywood show for a long time. And so since I had my heart set on it, I decided to do it anyway. Started doing researching online last night. Found this book called Hollywood Haunted. It was written quite a while ago by a lady named Lori. That was her last. See what I mean? I'm tired because I've been up all night like studying this book. Um, Lori Jacobson. And uh, she had people. It was really just a cool book because she actually uh, talks about the, the ghosts and stuff in the different places in, in Hollywood and she actually has Barry Taft going with her or, or, or different psychics going with her at, you know, towards the end of each chapter to see what they find. And for what it's worth, Barry Taft will be with us next month. He is the psychic who, who was primarily involved with that movie, that, that movie entity in, in the actual entity case. So he's going to be with us next month, but anyway, she would do this. And, and so I thought this is like 11 o'clock last night. Pacific and I thought, wow, you know what? Maybe I should contact her see if she'll come on the show. I know it's last minute. Of course, she couldn't make it tonight because it was last minute. And um, she asked she also said the book is out of print right now, and she's trying to get it back, you know, updated and back into print. But I decided the book was so cool that I'm gonna go over different places via the book. So you know what it is? It's Haunted Hollywood. It's Hollywood Haunted by Lori Jacobson, and uh, I was able to download it on Kindle last night so um yeah so we're gonna i'm gonna be reading stuff out of there of of what went on at some of these places in fact uh when i was it my my gap year in college i didn't know what i was going to be when i grew up you know i didn't know i was going to go into like this and that's not like ghost hunting doing a radio show doing you know do filming for a documentary doing my own documentary filming and all that stuff i had no clue i was going to do that stuff i really didn't in fact, when I went into first year of college, my first semester of college, my, my niece, who was going to Sac- Sacramento State at the time, filled it out for me because I really had no clue when I got out of high school what I wanted to be when I grew up. And this was like I graduated, I'm not gonna say when, but I graduated and I was one of those people that school bored the living heck out of me. By the time I got out of high school, I was ready. I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like going to the graduation ceremony. I just wanted my diploma out the door. That's how it was. So uh I had no interest in college. I went straight to work. But then after working for a few years, I kind of thought, well, okay, you know, my interests are changing. Because when I graduated high school, I wanted to be a forest ranger. That was my thing. I wanted to be out in the woods, you know, doing my thing, out with nature, listening to the birdies, looking at the bears or deer or whatever. I had no interest in photography at that time. I had nothing. But then after being, working and being on my own for a while, going through my two, what I call gap years, two or three gap years maybe more than that, it was quite a big gap year. maybe 10 years, of gap years, <laughs> something like that, owning a couple businesses, you know, in between, I finally decided I wanted to go to college, but I didn't know what I wanted to be, essentially, so my, like I said, my niece filled out my stuff, and one of the classes she sent me to was recording studio engineering, and so I did that for three years, and uh, so I, I know how to, like, Use all, you know, use all the recording equipment like for the studio when I know how to use all the equalizers and all that stuff. I know how to do that. But at the same time, I wanted, I had I a I, I, you know, desire to be a journalist. But at the same time, I I decided that I needed some kind of writing class. I started late. And so the only class open was a journalism class. So I, I, I did that. But then she signed me up for photography, you know. And so I took photography, taken journalism, got hooked on journalism, decided to be a journalist. But at the same time, okay, I was double majoring. And my other major was, was was um, well, actually there were, there were three. There was photography, journalism, and the theater arts. Because I was, I was really interested in doing something like not so much for film, but for TV video work. And at one time, the college I went to had this real big TV studio, which they didn't use anymore. So I was trying to figure out ways to adapt that to what I wanted to do so what I did was that with my photography classes of course I had to take I ended up taking stage lighting and then I ended up taking because I was really into horror makeup I was really good at it that was something else I was looking at I was thinking about maybe going to Hollywood and and trying my hand you know at one of the studios it was either going to be in makeup or I want to be a Foley artist so I turned around and took classes in college for um, stage makeup I took um, stagecraft, where you know where you build sets. I did that. I took lighting, which I'm afraid of heights. So me and the cat, me me up in the catwalks, really wasn't a great mix. But I mean, that's just part of what I did, because I thought no matter what, if I turn around and choose photography for a career, it can't hurt to to, to take that lighting classes, right? Okay. Anyway, so and this is all building up to something, so just bear with me. So I did all that passed all my classes, took horror movie, you know, genre classes, you know, everything I could get my hands on for that. And then once I went back to work, I started working with the public access channel in Woodland. And then I got hooked on video. And so I became a video producer. I started my own paranormal team at that. That's when I started the paranormal team at that point, became became a producer for for the California Haunts TV show. Photography is fun, Jennifer. It really is. If I do this, I'm trying to read because I'm blind. Like, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to um, blow this up here so I can read everybody's comments. That way I can see you guys and answer. But anyway, um, so I went into journalism. But at the same time, I still wanted to dabble in the other stuff. And then, you know, like, like as you guys know I, you know, I grew up in an active house. So... I still had that going on in my mind. So at that point is when I, when I got into video production over with uh, wave TV is when I decided I wanted to do a paranormal TV show. And so we did, and this is, I started my paranormal TV show the same year ghost ghost hunters came out and we were doing it on public access and we were going to different locations in Northern California. Only it was another team. It wasn't California haunts. It was another team. It was just a California haunts TV show. So then a couple of two, three years later, that all changed. Hang on one second. Why did this die? Oh, there it goes. And two or three years later, that all changed. And then it became the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. And then I was filming for my own team. But that's how it all gradually happened. It's a build up to this because during this time, I used to go to Los Angeles a lot, go to Disneyland, go to Hollywood, you know, and all that, and all these places. And as a sensitive, I wasn't allowing, you know, my abilities to come out. At that time, so I was sensitive like a rock. I mean, Marisa can tell you. My producer, Marisa Haynes, can tell you. We were on the Queen Mary one time, and I had a thing happen to me on the Queen Mary. Only to find out that it was something that happens frequently to people aboard the Queen Mary. Okay, but that's you know it was stuff like that that was going on, or like when I was uh, when I was self-employed with uh, direct mail marketing, and I went to pick up some packages. And I went to pick up some mail stuff at this apartment and i got in the elevator and i couldn't stand being in this elevator my dad had to go you know do this pick it up for me And it turns out a guy had been stabbed to death in this elevator a week before you know so i had things like that happening seeing stuff in my house you know but it never really impacted me so i never realized that the majority of the places that i visited in hollywood with my family and with my friends were all haunted like the Hollywood Wax Museum that I don't even know if it's there anymore. I think it was called that on Sunset. And there was like a phantom in there that would reach out and touch women. So I don't even know if it's there anymore. But I'm just saying and that, that's the thing. You know, I just don't know. So that's what it's all leading up to. The last trip I made with my dad, because my mom and dad would go with me. And then that last trip I made with my dad, we went to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which is really cool. You get, it's, a, it, it's a weird feeling because you can feel the energy there. So, you know, they're out walking around. Right. So I remember going there and even now when I look at video of that place, it gives me like it gives me like shivers because it kind of hits the reality to you. Because I don't like, you know, I'm one of the I, I love life. I really do. I, I, I mean, I may moan sometimes at how tough life is. We all do. Right. But I love I'm a person that loves life. I don't want to get old. I don't want to have to give up my my stuff that I do. I love life too much. So going to Hollywood Forever Cemetery, it hits you right between the eyes because you look at these people like Cecil B. DeMille, you know, you look at all these real, real big producers and directors and all these movie stars and stuff. And then you, you, you realize that, that (laughs) everybody ends up in the same place, man. Whether you're young old, whatever can happen anytime and boom, you know, it's going to happen no matter who you are. It doesn't matter. So it's kind of, it, it, it always gives me a surreal feeling. In fact, I'm going to try and get one of the tour guys to come on the show to talk to us about the people that are buried there, because there's some really cool people buried there. Right now, if you guys want to get into something kind of fun, um, they have a cat, a black cat. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a group um, of feral cats that live in the cemetery, and there's a whole book about like cemetery cats. And so there's one in particular called Close Up the Cat, and it's a... a I believe it's it's a black male cat that that lives in the cemetery. And the reason why it's called Close-Up is because it hangs out at Cecil B. DeMille's grave. And so there's an old saying, and I don't remember who the movie star was, because there was a movie that was made. And you hear this this budding starlet walk up, and she says, I'm ready for my Close-Up, Mr. DeMille. And that's why the cat's name is Close-Up. So this cat hangs out. So you can follow the cat. It's got it's, it, it, he has his own Instagram from the cemetery. And what's cool is that they have it set up so that they, they have a veterinarian that comes out and takes care of the cats. You know, they have living quarters, I think, for the cats and all this. And people on Saturday that they call their Catter Day come out and, and bring food and treats for the cats and you know, and all in all this. And so that's so really cool. So you get an Instagram follow close up the cat. Uh, but it makes you wonder because that's that that place is reportedly haunted too. Valentino. Reportedly, um, Rudolph Valentino reportedly haunts the uh, crypt area and a couple other movie stars. So you wonder because cats are so sensitive to that sort of thing, you know, if they're seeing stuff during the day and at night. It just makes you wonder because you know how cats cats will wander at night. So you wonder if, if, if they're coming in contact. Wow. You know what? It's like I'm covering up my sign. Hang on. This isn't cool. Somehow it got moved. All right, let me adjust. Okay, let me adjust. There we go. It makes you wonder. Um, I must have bumped it. it you It know, makes you wonder if, if the cats are coming in contact with anything at the studio. I mean, at, at the cemetery. Okay, but that's a cool account. Go to Instagram. Go check out Close Up the Cat because he's always got some really cool saying that you know, it's his kingdom and all this is going on. But uh, Hollywood Forever, yeah, they've got a lot of – I mean, that's – the majority, I mean, is just huge, huge stars. And I think Burt Reynolds is buried – just just was buried a few months back over by the lake. So you'll see a lot. There's even a thing for Toto over there, but Toto's not buried there. Toto's buried somewhere else, but they decided to put, like, a statue up for Toto. The Ramones are buried there. FYI. I mean, so it's stuff like that. But that's what makes you realize that, you know, when you go into a place like that – we're all going to end up there, right? That's it. That's the, it doesn't matter who you are You can be, you know, rich, 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 sales, Nick, whoever, you know, whoever you are, you're going to end up there, you know, but it's really a cool place because I know I have photos, but the, you know, cause that, that, that's when I was taking my photography classes. I went to Los Angeles because I had to do like a photo essay. So I did a day at Universal Studios and then we went to Hollywood forever. And so I know I've got photos of all these famous graves there. But anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your now that I blah blah. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I run the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based in Sacramento. We're 35 strong, up and down the state of California. Uh, you can visit us at www.californiahaunts.org or you can visit the radio show CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. We've got all our archives there and uh, some other extras too. Okay, if you're watching from YouTube, please please subscribe. There's a little ghost in the corner there with a uh, Sherlock Holmes hat on and a magnifying glass. Click on that and that'll subscribe you. And we've got over 200 videos and you can see almost every topic under the sun because we don't just we don't just cover paranormal here. We cover other stuff as well. Maybe spousal abuse, murders, whatever we covered. We got it covered. Anyway, without further ado, let's talk about some Hollywood ghosts. I want to talk about you know we've all watched Ghost tra- you know we've all watched all the ghost shows, seen certain places that are reportedly haunted in Hollywood. I might have a couple of those in this. Some of these you've probably never heard. In fact, I'm covering three, three motion picture studios that are haunted. Okay, and these are places like I said. Some of these places I have visited, and some I haven't. Obviously, I've never really done any ghost hunting in Hollywood, but like I said, I've been wanting to do this, so here we are. This came up, got the book, off we went. So I spent last night going through the book and highlighting stuff with the yellow highlighter, you know, on my tablet so that we, we could do this. So without further ado, we're going to Hollywood. Let me pull this thing out. Okay. First place we're going to visit, and you guys have heard of this. Sea Rose. I think that's how it's pronounced. Years and years ago, all the big stars went to Ciro's. Okay, Marilyn Monroe, you know all these people. Even I Love Lucy did a thing where when they went to Hollywood, they went to Ciro's. You know when Desi was auditioning for a part at a studio. So Ciro's in the Comedy Store is where our first stop tonight. Uh, Ciro's had a lot of mob things going on in the early days. So, you know, some of the ghosts at Ciro's could be, okay, this is coming from the book, okay? So so we know very clear it's coming from Hollywood Haunted, okay? So Ciro's, a lot of the ghosts at Ciro's could have been from, you know, hits from the mob or mobsters. Who knows, right? So let me get in here and we're going to talk about this. Ciro's popularity waned in the late 50s but the building's long tradition of entertainment continued uninterrupted as a rock and roll venue in the 60s and beginning in the mid 70s as the comedy store now owned and operated by Missy Shore, mother of Polly Shore. Quote, "I was a cocktail waitress at the store in 1981-82." This is from the, the this is from the author. Richard Pryor in preparation for his film Live on Live on the Sunset Strip performed there every night. The store dropped the, the store did draw celebrities like Bette Midler, Mick Jagger, Peter O'Toole, Sugar Ray Leonard. In the middle of it all, Robin Williams or John Belushi would jump on stage and the place would go wild. The new kids in town, Gary Shanling, Michael Keaton, Arsenio Hall, Richard Belzer, Sam Kinison, stood in the back awestruck. But when the laughter died out and the last glass was washed up, another kind of show began. In the early morning hours, when the store was quiet, the store was in the hands of comic Blake Clark, who doubled as doorman and security. Late one night, Blake checked the large showroom that had been Ciro's main room. He called out to make sure no one was backstage. No answer. He moved to lock up, but stopped in his tracks. A chair on one end of the stage was sliding toward the other side. Blake stood frozen as the chair glided effortlessly three feet 10 feet, 20 feet. When he could find his own feet, Blake was gone. I would be too. The spirits in that room always gave the late Sam Kinnison trouble, constantly messing with the lights and sound equipment while he was on the stage. One night, Sam challenged the spirits to show themselves. All the lights went off. Another time, Blake was closing up the main room and could hear Sam doing his act in the original room next door. As Blake waited for another employee, he heard a low buzz of voices. Bessemin, Bessemin, Bessemin. Sam got louder, reaching his trademark scream. And the buzzing got louder, too. Blake could now make it out clearly. The voices were chanting angrily, It's him, it's him, it's him. But sightings were limited to nighttime. One afternoon, as Blake played a video game in an annex off the kitchen, he felt a man watching from several feet behind him. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw a guy in a brown leather bomber jacket. Finally, Clark turned to acknowledge him. I could see through him. Then he disappeared, Blake says. I just ran. Later that afternoon, Debbie Dean, an assistant, walked into her office on the third floor. A man in a brown leather bomber jacket was crouching in terror in a corner near her desk. A moment later, he faded away. When Debbie and Blake compared notes, they were convinced they had seen the same man. Now, what was cool about this book was that she would do her research, and then she would call in, she would, she would call in psychics. So, what she says here is, Psychics believe that ghosts often recreate the circumstances of their deaths. If that's true, then it would appear this man meant to make her here. The mom had his fingers in this club back in the 40s and 50s. Gangster Mickey Cohen shook the place down every week. Chances are good someone got bumped off. Now, I told you guys earlier about Barry Taff. He's going to be on our show. In fact, we're going to ask him about some of this stuff. Now, now that I've seen this, okay? Barry Taff is going to be on our show next month. Okay, so that's, she says, what's that Barry Taff believes? There were so many occurrences at the store that Debbie called UCLA's parapsychology team in the summer of 1982 and asked to investigate. Taff, Taff and his partners conducted an uneventful exploration of the club until they got to the backstage dressing area of the main room where Blake had seen the chair move. While the team discussed matters in the back room, Two coins materialized from thin air, falling from the ceiling. Taff was excited. Later, the group was led to a storage area under the stage. When he entered this basement, Taff fell to the ground, stricken with agonizing pain in his legs. If there is something physical to pick up on, he says, I always feel it. His powerful psychic ability had tapped into the excruciating pain that someone, sometime, had suffered there. He felt strongly that this pain was no accident, that it was purposefully inflicted. To Taft, the basement felt like the heart of the building, where the mob carried out evil deeds. And Blake Clark agrees. Around three o'clock one morning, he heard a low, guttural growl emanating from the basement. The middle gate padlocked across the entrance began to bulge out, as if a tremendous weight was pushing against it. The gate groaned against the weight, then suddenly snapped back to its original position. Standing in front of it was a hulking, amorphous figure, almost seven feet tall, and so dark. It was darker than the blackness behind it. I got this tremendous feeling of malevolence from it. Blake Blake set a new land speed record, leaving the building. Blake had one last experience in the basement. He went downstairs with another comic, Joey Gavner. Within seconds, Joey, terrified, held his hands up in front of him, yelling, Don't come near me. No, stay away. Blake looked where Joey was looking but saw nothing. He looked at Joey and could see his breath as if it were freezing cold. Yet, when he touched Joey's hands, they were burning hot. Just then a piece of black cardboard dropped from the air and hit Blake on the hand. He picked it up and turned it over. His name was written on it. Blake won't go in the basement anymore. So yeah, so I mean, that store is still there. Now the author continues in here and says in April 1994, she returned to the store to film a segment of Haunted Hollywood for a new show. Barry Taft came. As I went before the camera in the main room, Taff watched the taping, aware of activity and people passing behind him, including three men watching from the back. When we finished, the crew packed up and left. Taff was the last one out. He turned to acknowledge the men. They were all wearing 40-style suits and wide lapels. And as Taff looked at them, they disappeared. So Ciro's is a very active place. I've been in there. I've been in the comedy club. It is a weird feeling when you're in there. But, of course, there were a lot of people in there when I was in there. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. But it is a very active place. So as we move on. Also, I I can vouch to the mobster thing because I remember uh, doing an investigation at Brookdale Lodge. Ran into the same thing, the mobsters. It was an incredible experience. but, 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 yeah, we ran into mobsters there, too. So, I mean, yeah. Especially the speakeasies. Like, you do the ride hotel and you run into speakeasies. You know, there's a speakeasy down there. As I move on, do, 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 so you could still go to Zero's. You go to Los Angeles, you could still go to Zero's. I don't know. I don't, I, 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 they might, it might be, it might be on the ghost shows. I don't know. I have no idea. I haven't watched those ghost shows in a long time, so it just might be on the ghost shows. Now we're going to talk about some of the studios. You know, some of these studios have been around. I mean, since the '20s, even before that. You know, Buster Keaton worked and, You know, guys like that. Uh, Studio 28 at Universal Studios. They just closed that in 2014. That was where they filmed *Phantom of the Opera*. Both versions of *Phantom of the Opera*, because you have the one with Lon Chaney, and then you have the one with the other guy. And uh, that's reportedly made, that was reportedly majorly high. In fact, I'm wondering because, um. They built one of their new, you know, how Universal has, has done an expansion to an amusement park and all that. They built one of their expansions on top of where that haunted studio was. So it makes you wonder, you know, if if, if things happen on that particular expansion. But there's no word on it. Culver City Studios, Culver, Culver Studios. Pioneer filmmaker Thomas Insey. I hope it's Thomas Insey on Hollywood history was so enormous that the French called him the film's first prophet. He set production ideals to what the industry aspired for years to come. Sadly though, he is remembered more for his death and his tremendous contribution to the art and craft of movie making. Incy died in November 1924 while celebrating his 43rd birthday aboard William Randolph Hearst's yacht. The abruptness of his death and his stature in the industry generated a series of sensational rumors. The most endearing is that Hearst caught his mistress, Marion Davies, kissing Charlie Chaplin and shot at him, accidentally hitting and killing NC. The small party on board, including Luella Parsons, God help them, Luella Parsons, right? Miss Gossip, uh, who later made a deal with Hearst for a syndicated gossip column, see, I told you, was sworn to secrecy. The visionary producer-director-writer built what is now Culver Studios in 1918. The lot changed hands several times after his death, with each owner bringing a new distinct era. Cecil Bill DeMille, Howard Hughes, David O. Selznick, see those names? Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball all made significant contributions to film and television history on this lot. Gone with the Wind, King Kong, Citizen Kane, E.T., and Television's The Untouchables, Lassie, Hogan's Heroes, and Batman are just a few of the classics that were shot. Rumors about hauntings have persisted for years. Employees report ghostly security guards patrolling the lot at night. Others recount seeing the ghosts of a man climbing the stairs of the main administration building to the executive screening room, originally NC's private projection room, on the second floor. And guards on the third floor have been frightened by the apparition of a woman from time to time. She disappears quickly, leaving a cold spot or chilling wand in her wake. Now... And I agree with this. Remodeling can be extremely irritating or upsetting to a spirit. Just prior to some major reconstruction in 1988, NC's ghost began to reveal his displeasure. The first to encounter him were two workers who reported seeing a man in an odd bowler-type hat watching them from the catwalks above stage 1, 2, and 3. When they spoke to him, he turned and walked through the second-floor wall. Later that summer, special effects man Eugene Hillshift was swapping stories with a worker who had seen a man wearing an odd hat, this time on stage two and three. Hilschi, spelled spelled different, so this time, thought the ghost might fit the description of Enchi. What the worker said next convinced him that it was indeed him. The spirit had turned to the worker and, in no uncertain terms, told him, I don't like what you're doing in my studio. Then he disappeared through a wall much of NC's original lot was saved and the sense of history is very strong. Today, Culver Studios is one of the busiest lots in town. So it's interesting because, you know, all the years that I've been investigating going to places like theaters and whatnot, that's why theaters are haunted, because these these movie stars and, and 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 opera stars love their work so much, you know, and actors love their work so much that they want to keep going back to the place where they were the happiest. Well, they're the happiest when they're working on stage. So that's why you're going to get a lot of hauntings, you know, in 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 like opera houses and theaters and studios like that because of that. Right. OK. Universal Studios. We already talked about this stage 20 I believe stage 28 yeah stage 28 um they call it the Phantom Studios to begin with it had nothing to do with the ghost that was it you know that, that they said was there it was just because this is where they filmed Lon Cheney and Phantom of the Opera so uh Universal Studios okay one of Charlie seniors greatest triumphs one of Chaney, I'm sorry one of Cheney Sr.'s greatest triumphs was 1925's The Phantom of the Opera. Universal built Stage 28 for the spectacular production, which became an immediate classic. Studio folklore tells of a ghostly man in a dark cape, sighted on Stage 28. Over the years, electricians, carpenters, designers, and art directors, and guards have all reported strange goings on there. Even people who didn't know the history of the stage reported seeing a man in a cape running on the catwalks. And guards admitted To being spooked by doors opening and closing. Closing and lights going on and off. On that empty stage in the middle of the night. Could it be Lon Chaney running down the catwalks overhead? Who knows. But at some point. During the production. During one of the original productions on the stage. An electrician was up on the catwalk. And somehow lost his balance and fell to his death. Okay. Now. For if none of you have been on these catwalks, I've been up on these catwalks because that's part of the training for for stage lighting. And it is, with the lights on, it's an adventure. And if the lights are off, like for shooting, or if there's a play, like a like a like say the Woodland Opera House, and you're up there, and all you pretty much have, because people aren't supposed to see you, you're dressed in black, you're up there mounting the lights and doing whatever you're doing. Or repairing like like now because of all the computer stuff now a lot of these lights work via um usb you know not usb but remote right so they can control them from from, from the lighting control you know the the, the 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 lighting keyboard right but back in the old days it wasn't like that back in the old days if you needed like um like these lights like now that you can even automatically change the color on the lights the gel you know like have a rotating thing right to change the gel. back then they didn't have that so if they were in the middle of a show like that and you needed to and then okay I, i'd rather have a green light cast down from the left from stage left somebody would have to go up there and manually do this okay so i mean it wasn't a picnic to be up there so this guy fell to his death and it's reported that maybe he's the one that's running the catwalks as well but like i said in 2014 Universal decided to knock it down and put something else there. Probably Harry, probably the Harry Potter thing went there or Jurassic Park or something went there. But Universal tore down that, that, that Phantom Studio. Raleigh Studios. Raleigh. 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 Stage 5. Haunted for over 60 years. Here's another story of an electrician that fell from a catwalk. In 19, Okay, so Raleigh Studios, built in 1914, has a rich history that includes names like Dolores Del Rio, Hopalong Cassidy, Charlie Chaplin, Frank Sinatra, and Kevin Costner. And my eyes just did a weird thing. I'm looking over here. This is like, <laughs> that was really strange. Wow, it looked like I was dying or something here. In 1932, an electrician fell to his death from the catwalk on stage five. For more than 60 years, okay, for more than 60 years, stagehands have felt his presence, and there are continuous reports of power failures, movement of heavy equipment, and drastic drops in temperature. Two security guards have been heard have even heard music coming mysteriously from the walls. Studio employee Don Kane remembers a specific incident in 1972. As he as he locked stage five on a Sunday night about 10, I called out, "Is there anybody here?" And it was quiet. Cain was almost out the door when he heard a voice shout back from the catwalk. He looked up towards the rafters. The work light the work light mounted five feet from the catwalk and weighing close to 300 pounds began to swing in an arc at six to eight feet. Kane again called out but not one answered but no one answered. He turned to his assistant. You did hear a voice, right? The assistant nodded. Kane nervous, backed up Closed the door and walked away. In nineteen ninety four, she says they took three parapsychologists. Doctor Barry Taff again, Barry Conrad, and Jeanette Batten knew no details. Only that stage five was purported to be haunted. The second they stepped onto the stage, all three felt an intense sensation of falling over backward. Taff even grabbed my arm to catch to catch himself. They were convinced something was wrong with the floor until we told them the spirit who haunted stage five. So this is still in existence. In fact, its name now is Sunset Sunset Los Palmas Studio. So, it, so the studio still exists. Okay, so we're moving on now to this stuff. There's theaters in here, but like I said, we've we've talked about the opera house and the different people that you know the the ghosts that haunt like like the the opera house and stuff and, and why they do it. I mean, it's generally for the same reasons, you know. And everyone but we can talk about and some of these, these theaters aren't there anymore but well, let's see if maybe grommens is in here because i kind of was in a, i was kind of skipping around last night to try and find stuff to talk to you guys about that you know that that, that places that you know just places that you hadn't really heard of let's try the palace let's do this one Did you ever such a wonderful night that you wished it would never end? Or maybe there's one you'd like to relive just one more time. Or maybe ten more times. The palace has provided many such nights for the young and old alike. Folks have been flocking here for almost 70 years, and a few don't want to go home. Opening in 1927 is the Hollywood Playhouse, one of four legitimate theaters in Hollywood. Over the years, it has been home to Fanny Bryce's Baby Snooks radio show, Ken Murray's famed Blackouts Theater Review, and such television shows as This Is Your Life, the Hollywood Palace, The Lawrence Walk Show, a one and a two, sorry, the Merck Griffin Show, and many Bob Hope specials. Since then, the palace has been remodeled as an ornate nightclub, the site of television specials, premiere parties, and film locations, and a showcase for top music artists. With such a list with such a list of credits of past and present, there's no question that the palace has played host to more stars than any other theater in Hollywood while at the same time providing thousands of people with some very special memories. Some of them, it seems, have come back for more. Okay, there's no (laughs) reference as to who this is, but it says, He checked downstairs for a radio but found none. He climbed the stairs to the first landing and listened. Someone was definitely playing the piano upstairs. Beautiful music, Dwayne says, like I never heard before. He followed into the third floor and the smaller comedy room. Some kind of light was emanating from the room, but he couldn't tell what it was. He tried the door. It was locked, and there was no other entrance to the room. He paused, listening to the music. Silently, he slipped the key in the door. When he opened it, the music stopped instantly. Dwayne saw no one. He looked at the piano. Normally it was closed and covered, the bench tucked away, but now the cover was off. The keyboard was open and the bench was pulled out. Dwayne ran downstairs, let himself out, and stayed there for the remainder of the shift. Now he remembers the exact experience with longing. It was so beautiful, I wish I could hear it again, but I never have. Weeks later, Dwayne was looking up at the second floor lobby when he got a strange feeling. Suddenly a cold wind blew, and a beautiful perfume filled the air. He moved toward the stairs. That's when he distinctly felt someone tap him on the shoulder. He turned, but no one was there. Just the cold wind and the fragrance. It was really neat, Duane says with a smile. Another evening, Duane brought Sarge, his cousin's German Shepherd with him. Again it was about 2:30 and all was quiet. Duane was reading the paper at one of the tables. Sarge lay quietly at his feet. Suddenly the dog picked up his head and stared at the, at the left end of the stage. Duane looked where the dog looked. Sarge barked once and Duane released him from his leash. Then he picked up a shotgun, cocked it and followed Sarge toward the stage left curtain. It moved slightly, and Dwayne saw a figure. A man in a tuxedo was watching him. Dwayne noticed two things about the man right away. He had no feet, and his face was transparent. Get him, Sarge, he commanded, and Sarge took off, but just as he's arrived at his destination, the man disappeared. Sarge sniffed the ground. Dwayne looked, but the man was gone. Shaken, Dwayne set a booby trap in the kitchen. He put a plate on the floor and placed a wine glass on top of it. If someone ran through the room, chances were good he'd kick it over. Then he and Sarge went back to the main room. At 5.35 a.m., Dwayne and Sarge heard a noise and both took off for the kitchen. Sarge quickly disappeared behind the door, but a few moments later he reappeared whining like a puppy. The dog stuck close to Dwayne's leg as he cautiously approached the kitchen and slowly opened the door. The room was empty. Dwayne looked at his trap. The plate was now resting on top of the wine glass. Dwayne again spent the rest of the night outside, this time with Sarge. There's a reason Dwayne didn't see the apparition's feet. Ghosts often don't recognize remodeling. They see rooms as they were when they lived in them. The man in the tux may have been standing on on the original theater floor beneath the nightclub's dance floor. Early in 1994, Dwayne was walking on the main dance floor. He was alone in the club, and it was absolutely still. He looked up to the balcony and was surprised to see two older people deep in conversation. Excuse me, he called out. You can't be up here. The couple ignored him. Dwayne hurried upstairs and out onto the balcony. The couple was still there. He walked towards them, continuing to call out, but they paid him no attention. Dwayne noticed their old-fashioned 1930s-style clothing. When he got to within 50 feet of them, they disappeared. Perhaps the couple was reliving a special anniversary they were celebrating there. Whatever the occasion, these lovebirds never seemed to run out of things to say. Palace patrons complain regularly of people in the balcony talking and laughing during the show. Sean Dobbs, operations manager at the palace, is hard-pressed to believe in ghosts, yet he can't deny what he saw around 4 o'clock one morning in November 93. The band Belly had played to a packed house earlier, but the club was empty and completely dark as Sean and the security chief walked through the main room to secure the building. Afterward, the security chief went home, leaving Sean alone. When Sean came back out to the nightclub, all the white stage lights were on. A sheer white curtain hung across the stage between him and the lights. He trotted down and looked behind it, wondering who had turned on the lights. Worse, how was he going to turn them off? The second he had thought, however, the light—the second he had the thought, however—the lights went off. He froze. A few blue lights shone eerily from a catwalk above. Instinctively, Sean, Sean started backing away across the dance floor, convinced. That someone was playing a trick on him, but he was completely alone. As he continued watching the stage, he saw something floating in the upper right corner. The blue lights backlit the stage just enough for him to see its shadow on the curtain. It appeared to be a shimmering, wavy mass about five feet square, like a jellyfish, changing all the time. A shiver went up his spine. The mass moved off to the side and disappeared. Sean held his breath. Everything was dead still. And then it came back. Traveling slowly across the stage, he could see the lights through it. It floated back to where he first saw it and disappeared. It was like watching something through water. Sean explained, "It was fluctuating like it was, like it was something on Star Trek." I've never seen anything like it before. Maybe the being Sean saw on the stage was trying to send a message. The palace has had its trouble with virtually every piece of electronic equipment at some point in time, and on a fairly regular basis, the adding machines and cash registers print out weird, indistinct indecipherable messages during the night, composed of numbers grouped to look like words and sentences. Sean doesn't have any idea what they mean, but he saves all of them. Who knows? Perhaps they are messages from beyond from the piano player, the man in the tux, the elderly couple, or any number of spirits yet unseen. The palace is a place where memories were made. You can't blame people for wanting good times back. If Sean decodes those messages, he might discover it's, it's a call for another round of drinks in the balcony. When I visited, real quickly when I visited the um the uh Brookdale Lodge a couple of times we went to Brookdale Lodge to film. It was funny because you know there's that scene in um The Shining where Jack Nicholson walks walk you know walks into the um you know where Jack Nicholson walks into the uh the uh, ballroom and they're all in there drinking, you know, and they turn around and they hold the glasses up and salute him. That's what this was like. I walked into Brookdale Lodge and that's what I saw. I saw all these guys dressed in gangster clothes type clothing. And the old turn and smiled at me as I walked in. So I, I can understand what they're talking about with, with this palace, you know, this theater, because that's what I experienced. Any place where somebody had a good time in their life, it's hard for them to leave. And this is, you know, we found this out over and over doing various investigations, you know, up and down the state of California, you know, in commercial buildings. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, on one hand, it's cool because sometimes they're good old boy ghosts. Uh, on the other hand, the other kind of ghosts can be there, the ones like, like the ones that were murdered by the mob or whatever, and you're going to run into those guys who aren't very happy. So you kind of get both. But. On, you know, on the up and up, usually it's it's ghosts that, that, are, that enjoy themselves so much doing something in that particular location that they don't want to leave. They still want to stay there. In fact, with the Brookdale Lodge, it was funny because we were talking to one gentleman and uh, he didn't really want to talk to us because we were filming. And his attitude was he was there, but his wife wasn't there. So he was cheating on his wife. So he did not want us to put him in our documentary. That's what he told the psychic. He did not want us to put him in our documentary because he was afraid his wife would find out. So we had to assure him that, you know, (laughs) that that his wife would not find out, you know, that he was at at the Brookdale Law cheating on her. So, I mean, you run into stuff like that all the time. So we're going to talk about a hotel that's been on TV, the the, the Roosevelt, because I think it's significant. A lot of big stars stayed there. Again, I've never gotten to go to these places yet. I will, you know. Now that I'm older and I can do my own thing, I will go. But uh, we're going to look at some hotels, and uh, we're not going to talk about the Cecil, okay? We're not going to go there. The first one we're going to talk about is the Alexandria, and it's called the Alex circa 1945. The two million Dollar hotel was so popular that an 11-story annex was added to the original seven stories just three years after it opened in 1906. Today at the corner of 5th and Spring Streets is the center of downtown Los Angeles, stands a faded remnant of Hollywood's rich past. Hundreds of people pass it daily unaware that Churchill, Bernhardt, Caruso Chaplin, Padruski, King Edward VIII, Presidents Taft, Wilson, and Theodore Roosevelt, and dozens more of the world's most powerful and talented personalities were once familiar names on the guest register, and at least one early guest may still wander the halls. The once majestic Alexandria Hotel centered the centered to the professional and social needs of the business community of 1906 Los Angeles. With several theaters and restaurants in the area, the Alexandria I got lost, hang on. Okay. The Alexandria became a natural meeting place for the newly arriving movie crowd. By 1910, one need to go no further than the lobby to find virtually every one of importance in the business. This is where the power, lunch, and networking were were born. As LA LA developed in a westerly direction, the movie colony abandoned the Alex for the newer, more modern Biltmore and Ambassador Hotels. The once-grand hotel became a ghost of its former self, and so it remained for half a century. In the early 70s, the hotel received a $2 million facelift. Two actresses strolling downtown a summer afternoon ventured inside to see where so much history had preceded them. But Nancy, Malone, Lisa, and Mitchell were disappointed to find not a single reference to the history of Hollywood there. They lamented the omission to the owner, who was so impressed by the women's breadth of knowledge that he hired them to help bring that flavor back. Nancy and Lisa named rooms for the hotel's famous residents and decorated them with portraits of the stars. In the hallways, they hung photographs, of Hollywood during the hotel's heyday. I believe the past leaves its energy in places, and I'm very respectful of that, says Nancy, a director and Emmy-winning actress. We were thrilled to be dealing with all that treasure. After weeks of work, Nancy felt comfortable and safe in the hotel. She had heard stories about a ghost haunting in the halls, but as she worked alone at 2 a.m. one September morning, a ghost was the last thing she expected to see. While hanging pictures at the end of the long hallway, she paused and glanced up. There at the end of the hall was a woman dressed in black from head to foot, wearing a large cartwheel hat. Her dress was beautiful, Nancy recalls, with an almost bustle back, and the hat had a veil. She seemed to be a woman in her 30s or 40s. And done. In one fleeting moment, I saw her walk about eight feet. Her walk and her carriage were beautiful, more like a glide. I didn't see through her, but she wasn't solid either. It wasn't like things you see in the movies, you know, ectoplasm floating in the air, nor was it a human being. It was something in between. Nancy remembers a feeling of sadness, a sense that the woman was looking for something. Though she never felt threatened, the experience did shake her up a bit. I'm not a ghostbuster, Nancy tells me. I'm very rooted in reality, but I'm also accepting of mystical events in the world that seem to have no apparent explanation. I believe in a lot of what we don't know about officially. I never got over seeing the ghost. Nearly 25 years later, I still remember every detail. This particular spirit sounds as if she might have been a resident of the hotel in its earliest years. Dressed in black, she could be in mourning. Grief is a powerful emotion. Some people have died of it. Maybe that's the story of this poor spirit stricken with grief. So, yeah, so this hotel maybe they may be there or may not be there. Or maybe an apartment now, you know, because sometimes they change those things into apartments. That's a good place to check out if you ever go. Roosevelt Hotel. Now I know that they've done this on TV, but I just think it's kind of cool because I think even Elvis stayed there once, so it's kind of cool. I'm a huge Elvis fan. We know Montgomery Cliff stayed there, Marilyn Monroe stayed there. When you ask staff at the Hollywood Roosevelt if it's haunted, the answer is an emphatic yes. In fact, they're quite proud of their ghosts, which is fortunate because in this celebrated hotel, there's an abundance of apparitions to be found from the boiler room to the roof. As the film business grew and people flocked to Hollywood, local residents saw the need for a prestigious hotel. The city's reigning king and queen, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, helped make the original Roosevelt a reality. And the grand opening of the luxury Hotel in 1927 hosted the biggest stars of the day. Among them, John Gilbert, Gloria Swanson, Greta Garbo, Will Rogers, and Clara Bow. In 1984, the historic hotel underwent a $12 million restoration, bringing back its original glory with some of its old friends. And with it, some of its old friends. Since the renovations, ghosts have been coming out of the woodwork. Two weeks prior to the 1985 grand reopening, a spirit was discovered in the Blossom Room, a ballroom that hosted the first Academy Awards Banquet in 1929. The spirit took the form of a cold spot, a circle of about 30 inches in diameter and more than 10 degrees colder than the rest of the room. Psychics had felt the presence of a man in black who was suffering great anxiety, perhaps a Tuxedo Academy Award nominee waiting for an envelope. On that same day, an employee dusting a mirror in the manager's office saw the reflection of a blonde. She turned to speak to the, to the woman, but there was no one standing behind her. Yet, when she turned back to the mirror, the reflection was still there. The mirror hung in Suite 11200 often, which was used by Marilyn Monroe. Two psychics have read the mirror and felt great sadness. Parapsychologists believe that long after the spirit departs, intense emotion and energy can remain. It's possible that some of Marilyn's sadness is reflected indeed, trapped in the mirror. As guests arrived at the newly refurbished hotel, the staff was alerted to more inexplicable activity. They frequently heard complaints about loud talking in a room next door or children playing in the hallway. When security personnel checked, though, they found the hallways clear and the rooms unoccupied. Phones were lifted from receivers in empty suites three times in the evening. A A lobby maid was pushed into a supply closet by unseen hands. Other employees reported strange shadows. Many refused to work on the ninth floor at all, saying there was something strange particularly in and around room 928 at the end of the hall. Actor Montgomery Clift lived in room 928 for three months in 1952 while filming From Here to Eternity. He often paced the hallway rehearsing his lines and practicing the bugle. Maids have felt something cold brush by them in that section, while others have felt a strong presence watching them or walking at their side. On a November night in 1992, an overnight guest in room 928 felt a hand patting her shoulder while she lay in bed reading. She turned to say goodnight to her husband, but he was sound asleep. In 1989, a television film crew planned to shoot at the hotel, but the ghosts wreaked havoc with their equipment. As the crew set up cameras outside Cliff's room, the house lights went out. When they finally came back on, the sound equipment broke down. Then the lights went out again, and the film jammed inside the camera. When the crew tried to shoot them on mirror, the smoke alarm went off, and in the Blossom Room, the cold spot caused the audio equipment to malfunction. In 1990, a couple strolling on the mezzanine followed piano music out on the balcony overlooking the deserted Blossom Room. They saw a man in a white suit standing next to a piano. He did not respond to their greeting, and when the couple walked closer, he disappeared. A thorough search was done, but no man in a white suit was found. Two days later, a hotel engineer working on the third floor directly above the mezzanine, glanced down the hall and saw a man wearing a white suit and old shoes. The engineer called out to him but got no answer. The engineer walked closer to within three feet and asked the man if he needed help. As he watched, astounded, the man in white walked right through the fire door. In the spring of 92, psychic Peter James conducted a series of midnight investigations in the academy room, originally the hotel library and the room used for meetings of civic or social groups. James found a very cold spot, which he described as a tubular shaft that spirits use as an opening to enter this plane. Apparently, the room was their their gathering place, too. James also encountered the ghost of a little girl who said her name was Carol, or Caroline, and that she was looking for her mother. In the penthouse library, James encountered Caroline again. She She was crying, so he tried to comfort the child. She was afraid her mother had been hurt. As James tried to learn more, Caroline said she had to find her mommy and vanished. Several months later, the PBX operator found a delightful little girl playing in the lobby in the, entire, in the early morning. She was about five years old, dressed in a pink jacket and blue jeans. Her light brown hair was pulled back in a ponytail that bounced as she sang and skipped around the fountain. As the man crossed to the front desk, she followed. Is that your little girl? The operator asked. The man looked perplexed. When the operator looked back at the child, she had evaporated. Another Caroline sighting? James felt the impressions of many celebrities throughout the hotel grounds. Monroe near her favorite suite by the pool, Errol Flynn, Betty Grable, and Edward Arnold in the Blossom Room. Gypsy Lee and Ethel Merman in the poolside Tropicana Bar, Humphrey Bogart, Charles Lawton, and Carmen Miranda were there too. As with, Monroe, as with Monroe's mirrors, these impressions are probably the result of residual energy from me- memorable times that these people spent at the Roosevelt. See, again, it's because they all had a good time there. They don't want to leave. I do too. There's places I want to go. You know, that'd be a cool thing to do for like a ghost hunt. You know, these people don't want to leave these, these places because, you know, they had. Oh, here we go. James also communicated, tendency this part, of spirits with lesser known folk. He descended into the boiler room following. Following his theory that spirits would tend to gather near the building's energy source, he sensed a number of spirits, including one identifying himself as Ron or Ronald, who claimed the room as his domain. Halfway down the steps, James distinctly felt someone slap him on the rear. James had heard of people's experiences with Monty Cliff's spirit and wanted to spend the night in room 928. Outside the door, James clenched his fist in response to the intensely angry energy he felt coming from the room. But at 2 a.m., he climbed into bed and quickly fell asleep. Ninety minutes later, he was awakened by the sensation of a heavy weight lying across his body. Trapped and held on his side, he struggled under it, barely able to move. Slowly, he was able to draw in a deep breath and throw his arm backward. When he did, the weight lifted. It felt like a person had been lying on top of him. Eventually, James fell back to sleep, but at 5 a.m., he awoke to see the shadow of a man seated in a chair in the corner. He would not respond to James, rather. He just sat and watched for close to 30 minutes, then, without warning, he got up, walked toward the bathroom, and disappeared. The ghost looked like Clift, and James sensed that the spirit was trapped there, unable to find peace. A young security guard, I'll call Jerry, knew nothing about the ghost when he first started at the Roosevelt. Not that Jerry ever thought about ghosts. He didn't, but he does now. On my first night, he remembers, I went to sleep early in an unoccupied room so I would be alert for my 2 a.m. shift. I was awakened by someone shaking my shoulder. I turned on the light, but no one was there. I looked around the room, trying to figure out what might have happened. Finally, I went downstairs and mentioned it to security. When I asked them what they thought it might be, they just looked at each other and smiled. Jerry experienced what he now calls the usual self-feeling of presence in the hallway, especially in Cliff's area. Guests bolted out of their suites from the inside. Oh, guests bolted out of their suites from the inside. Calls to the switchboard from... From empty rooms. Then one summer morning, around three, security cameras showed a man enjoying a dip in the pool. Jerry went to check it out, but saw no one. The guard at the desk told Jerry via walkie-talkie that he could clearly see a man in the shallow end. I'm telling you, Jerry. I'm telling you, Jerry. Radioed back as he waved his arms through the empty air. There's no, there's nobody there. But on the video screen, the guard saw Jerry waving his arms through, waving his arms through the head or waving his arms to the head of a man standing on the pool in the pool. Most guests are completely unaware of the ghosts. The majority never feel a cold wind against their arms, nor do they see vanishing piano players or even Marilyn Monroe's reflection. No, most guests enjoy a peaceful stay and a touch of old Hollywood. A special few are looking for old Hollywood to touch back. Those who hope to catch a glimpse of Montgomery Clifton in 928. But for the most part, the Hollywood Roosevelt and the Visitors, a quiet look at Hollywood's past, Every once in a while, however, a guest will call the front desk to complain about noisy children playing in the hall. So yeah, so there's a few uh, Hollywood haunted. Like I said, I was hoping to get, you know, a couple extra people on there, but it didn't work out. Let me move myself over. I think that's why my eyes—I <laughs> freak myself out. Um, let's see. Hang on a second. Let me like down this a little bit. Okay. I freaked myself out because I was looking off to the side too because when I enlarged the chat room, my camera view went over there. So I was freaking myself out looking at stuff. But anyway, um, yeah, I can vouch. And when they talk about, and what's interesting is about the cold spot that that they talk about in the Blossom room, because when we went out to the Murphy's hotel, and did the Mark Twain ballroom on, on our first trip out there, it wasn't a cold spot that they were able to trace. They were tracing a, Around a ball of EMF that was traveling around the room. So it's kind of interesting that it's a similar experience, except one was a cold spot, and one was one was EMF. You know, so, so a lot of this stuff they're talking about is stuff that we've experienced. Just like for going back to the Brookdale Lodge, there's a little girl that that haunts the, the the Brook room. If you've never been to the Brookdale Lodge, you're in for a treat if, if they're open again now because they have a brook. It's it's built over a brook. So when you go in, there's a restaurant in there, and this brook runs right up the middle. And it's really cool. It just runs right through the building. And this little girl haunts the brook. And uh, that, that was a cold spot when we were there. That was something that we followed around uh, because we could trace where she was by this cold spot. And she runs all over there. She apparently drowned in the brook at some point. So she you know runs up and down the sides of the brook and, and all that. Gets close to the water. Gets in the water. That kind of thing. So, I mean... It's just a lot of comparable stuff because when they talk about that little girl Caroline, right? It's it's a similar kind of haunting as the Brookdale Lodge has. So it's it's really neat to read these things because this is why ghost hunting groups keep files too. The other reason why why we keep meticulous files on our clients because there might be a case that we can go back, like for let's say I go to the Roosevelt Roosevelt Hotel and we start investigating stuff there. We hear about the Caroline, you know, we hear about the cold spot that's roaming around the room. Now we can go back into our files and go, oh, man, we had a case. Where it was? Oh, it was Murphy's where we were following that that ball of EMF around. Or, oh, my gosh, the little girl, little girl. Brookdale Lodge where the little girl runs around. So there's similar cases where similar things happen, right? So that's one reason why we all keep really meticulous files as ghost hunters. Okay? But I do what I would love to take, go with a group and, and, and investigate some of these places. That's one That's one goal I have before I die, <laughs> before I meet my maker, is to go with all this cool equipment we got. I'd love to get in these places and go, especially with the psychic team that I have to get in there and, and, and really take a look around Montgomery Cliffs Room and that kind of thing. I wish we could get access to these studios. That'd be kind of cool. you know. But there's nothing more creepy than a studio in the dark or, or a, a big theater or an opera house, and you're going through there in the dark. It's creepy as hell. There's another report, too, that I read online that Madame Tussauds. There's claims that the wax figures move by themselves. Scary. I think the one in Las Vegas has that issue. Because that's where, they, that's where the guy goes in, in the back room. Because that used to be part of one of the big casinos. Because we always wanted to go back to Las Vegas and see if we could get in there. And they say that, El, that they can hear Elvis singing in the one room that used to be the, the showroom. Of the frontier hotel. And that's part of the wax museum. That's part of the Madame Tussauds thing. But they hear Elvis in there. And that's where they have reports also of the wax figures moving by themselves. But I'll tell you something, if you do an investigation, even with dummy, I mean, um the the uh, railroad museum downtown, or any museum you do, okay, like we've done museums, we have done museums, you know, they always have um mannequins in these museums. And I can tell you from experience that if you're in there in the dark and you're running around with flashlights and you come across these mannequins, it looks like they're moving because of the shadows. You know how the shadows are cast when you're walking? It does look like they're, they're moving. There's nothing more creepier than doing an investigation with these mannequins. So I can imagine the people that have been able to do Madame Tussauds and places like that, what it's like for them to go in and investigate because it is creepy. Because they're all standing there, you know. So, yeah, I can't imagine. Just like I know the Madame Tussauds, or um, I think the Holy, what used to be the Hollywood Max Museum, one of them used to allow parties. So you could have a party in whatever themed room you wanted. So you could rent it out, right, and you want a birthday party or, or a dance or whatever. And you could pick a room, so you could, you could be in there with Sammy Davis Jr. or whoever you want to be in there with. And I can't remember, and don't hold me too out there in, in in video land of who it was, whether it was Madame Tussauds, the Hollywood Wax, the the other museum, the, the one in Movie Land. Sorry, I was thinking Movie Land in in uh in Buena Park. I think it was Movie Land. Used to let you rent the rooms out and stuff. <laughs> you could go in there with all these stars and have your food and do, you know, you have your hors d'oeuvres and stuff. But it's creepy. I mean, I have done, we have done a couple museums where they've had mannequins. And you're walking, and of course, you're in the dark, and you're walking around, and you keep coming across these mannequins. It's, it's scary stuff. Well, look at my cats. I go out to see my cats. The room's dark, and I've got I got my big bright light on my head trying to see my cats, and every time I'm, the cats look like they're stoned. Every every time I move my light around, the cats are, like, looking around like this. You know, they're really into it. But that's how, you know, that's how you can make stuff look like it's moving because the, the way the light hits it, and it's bouncing. But uh, yeah, I do want to visit some of these places, and I and, I, and this book was great. I needed something last night. I was, I was doing research and taking little notes on on cue cards and stuff for today, and I thought, man, this is going to be too hard to sit here and like put all this on cue cards, and I'll end up with like a million cue cards. So then I thought there's got to be some book that could simplify my my search for these Hollywood haunts, and then I found this one. But it is available, even though it's out of print, you can get it as an ebook. You know, put it on your um kindle so and that is and i'm going to say it again and that is um hollywood haunted by lori jacobson there's also a lot of photos in it it even talks about like different movie star homes that people have purchased like rick nelson purchased this house that was owned by errol flynn and there's a lot of stories his daughter um who i'm friends with on facebook she you know has reported even on facebook that she was driving up the hill and there's there's, and the house was, like, on this hill, and, and there's, there's like, a big window. And she remembers looking up and seeing someone, like, standing in, in the window, and nobody was home. And they think it's Errol Flynn. That's a famous house haunting. And you've seen the one on TV with, with, with the Tates. And that, the Ormond, is it the Ormond House, I think it's called? It's that one, too, you know. But that's just the property. That's not the house itself. That house is gone. But, the you know, there's a lot of house hauntings. Movie stars just don't want to go. They don't want to leave. You know? So it's a fascinating place. And I think Hollywood is a fascinating place. And I always felt, you know, going in like to Universal Studios and places like that, I've always felt that I belong back in the times of like Gene Kelly and how magical it must have been, you know, to watch these guys work on those stages at MGM and stuff to make that magic you know, I watched these old movies and I'm astounded at what they were able to do like in the which one was it? I think it was the Jean Gene, Gene Kelly, the American in Paris, where they the, the there's a curving stairway and the French singer, I believe it was it, it was Maurice 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 Chevalier. And I think it was, I'm not positive, I'm not home to it, because I think he was in Gigi, I'm probably confusing the guy, but there was another, you know, there was a French actor, and as he's singing, he's going up and down these stairs, but what's interesting is because they did not have the technology then that they do now, and as he's stepping on these steps, going up the stairs, they're all lighting up their, their white stairs, obviously, because it's black and white, but as he's stepping up the stairs, they're lighting up, just like, you know, we have these little piano keyboards that we mess around on, the lights come on to show you where to push, you know, where to push the keys and stuff. This is what was happening when this guy was singing and going up these stairs. So it amazes me the technology that they used back in those days, that they were able to, you know, the effects and stuff that they were able to generate for these movies. You know, so I always find it awe-inspiring to see that. And I always felt that maybe in another life, that's that's where I worked, was at a studio somewhere. Because, you know, I'm I'm, I'm so drawn in by it all you know i'm always looking at that stuff and that's why i took that in college and yada 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 yada, yada. you know but anyway that's my little trip to hollywood hopefully you know i might get um, i'm thinking about getting a hold of the people at the hollywood forever cemetery and maybe getting them on to to talk about the people there okay and uh We'll see. We'll see what I can do about that. But uh, it's an interesting thing. And then maybe if I do that, I'll be able to get my 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 picture so I can show you guys, you know, that I that I took when I was there originally, off the negatives and, and show you guys. But um, I thought I want well, I've been wanting to do this for a while. And uh, so when everything fell apart, I thought, well, I'm just going to plow through and do it anyway. That's just how I am. Tomorrow we're going to do phone calls and messages from the dead. You know, you you hear reports about this occasionally, where in fact it was just. What, within the last six years, seven years, that that train derailed? I forget where it was, and somebody was getting text messages from her husband when he would have been dead. It happens. This stuff happens. There's a hotel that they're redoing up in Lake Tahoe that, and I'll have to get the name for tomorrow. I'll have all this for tomorrow. But Marilyn Monroe and Frank Sinatra stayed there. And there's one particular room where the phone rings and there's no one there. So they think it's Marilyn Monroe calling, right? So uh, yeah, I mean it, it does happen. So we're gonna talk about that. This uh, this this lady that's gonna be on with me, she does not um, she have any, real, any you know she's never written a book or anything about it, but she runs a website where she talks about different paranormal stuff, and one and one of the pages on there is uh, is is stuff about phone calls from the dead. Yeah, yeah, Jennifer. Yeah, it happens all the time, right? So, one of the thing, one of the pages she has focuses on phone calls from the dead. So people have written stories like Jennifer's here. People have written stories to her about these phone calls from the dead. The other fun thing is that the book "Phone Calls from the Dead." I finally found the author the other night, and so he's going to be on in April, and he's going to talk about a bunch of them. So we're going to have that guy on the the original author on for that. But tomorrow we're going to talk about messages and phone calls from the dead. So that's our topic, 6.30 p.m., usual time we're here. And that's what we're doing tomorrow. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated my show, <laughs> share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here at California Haas Radio. And again, please subscribe to YouTube. I believe we're two away from 200 subscribers now. So we're we're building up, we're building up, we're building up. And uh, the funny thing is that there was a guy, a gentleman, that came on the page a couple, of, uh, a week like for the story time a week ago Sunday, and he had made the statement that you know he liked our show, he liked the background, the, the topics we have, he liked the backdrop, how how professional everything looked, but he was he he was kind of disturbed because YouTube YouTube shows us no love with the algorithm, and I agree, YouTube you need to show us more love. But anyway. Like I said, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Uh, Visit us at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Click on the video on the front. I'm doing a major update there. Click on the video on the front. That will take you into all our archives for these shows. Not to mention I'm putting the archives from when we did Blog Talk for 15 years on there as well. So that's coming along. Any events that we have will show up under special events. Stuff like that. There's t-shirts you can buy. All kinds of stuff. And if you have a suggestion for a guest... And we and and we use that suggestion, or we get a hold a guest and book it. I'll send you a California Haunts t-shirt for free. That's something else I'm offering. Okay, I mean, I'm sorry, California Haunts Radio t-shirt. Too much California Haunts in my life, but I'll I'll get you a t-shirt for free, just for just for suggesting a guest that that we put on. Okay, but I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. And here is my PBS moment. And because California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team is a nonprofit organization. So everything you see here, uh, the lighting, not me, but the hats, you know, you know what I mean, the mics, the computers, the cameras, all that stuff. It all comes out of my pocket. I pay for the internet, I pay for, you know, I I I pay for this for StreamYard service, I pay for all this stuff. So anything you could do to help me out with that would be great. And you can do that at PayPal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, there's Venmo. Go to Venmo, type in California Haunts boom, it's there, okay, but I want to thank each and every one of you for for supporting us, Jennifer, thank you, help me get the headphones, awesome, my headphones died a couple weeks ago, Jennifer Martin helped me there, thank you, you know, so I really appreciate it, and believe me, I may not act like I do, but I really, really appreciate any help that I get to keep this thing going, because I enjoy doing it, I'm a journalist photographer, that's the direction I decided to take, But see, this is what happens that I came full circle because now I'm producing videos and doing this. So essentially I came full circle into doing film film work and TV work. So, yeah. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. And hopefully tomorrow we're going to have a great show. Well, I know we're going to have a great show tomorrow. Let me get back up. There's my screen. See, I love pushing my buttons. You guys know that. But uh, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Okay? Bye.